Molan Labe, the Persians told the Greeks at Thermopylae, Surrender your arms. King Leonidas of the Spartans replied, Milan Labe, come and take them. Hello and welcome to this 15th episode of The Greek Sun, the second series of episodes in the Western Traditions podcast. This will be the second of four episodes about the Persian War. In the last episode, I looked at the background to the war and brought us to the Battle of Marathon. This episode will cover some of the aftermath to that battle, both in Greece and in Asia, and I will end today's episode with the Battle of Thermopylae. If you are enjoying the episodes of this podcast, please visit my website at westerntraditions.org. That's westerntraditions.org, where you will find all of the episodes completed so far, some nice maps and helpful Im- images, as well as some source lists and some recommended books to read. You can also visit the shopping page and pick up some Western Traditions merchandise or contribute directly to the podcast through the PayPal or Patreon buttons. And now, without further ado, let's look at the conditions on the ground in Greece and in Persia after the unexpected and shocking victory of the Athenians at the Battle of Marathon. At the end of the last episode, I mentioned a controversy about the Alcmenid family. That's A-L-C-M-A-E-O-N-I-D, Alcmenid. This remark may have been a little difficult to decipher because I have not mentioned this family yet. Now, the ten tribes of Athens could be broken down into clan and family groupings. Among all these families, there were several that were among the elite that could be counted on to hold high office in the land. If you listen to the 12th episode, then you already know the name of one member of this family, Cleisthenes, the father of Athenian democracy, who usurped power and ruled as a tyrant in the late 6th century BC, while simultaneously supporting the democratic and constitutional structure of Athenian government. He was an Alcmenid. The Pisistratids, the family to which the other famous tyrant of Athens, Pisistratus, belonged, this family was one of the political rivals of the Alcmenids. Anyway, the controversy was this. After the Battle of Marathon and after the Persian fleet had sailed away and left Athens untouched, a rumor spread which suggested that the Alcmenid family had tried to help the Persians seize Athens. According to the rumor, a member of this family, standing among the victorious troops on the battlefield of Marathon, had raised a shield as a signal to the Persian fleet. Now, Herodotus goes on at some length about this controversy, but even with limited information and at this great distance and time, it seems to me on the surface a little nonsensical. I don't know how a signal from someone at Marathon would help the Persians do what they did. This would only make sense if the Alcmenids had somehow delayed the army on its return to Athens to defend it, but there is no sign that they did such a thing. And the Persians certainly didn't need any help in realizing that this was a good idea, that is, sailing to Athens with the hope that the Greek army would not be able to return in time. I only bring this controversy up because it is a good example of a very big concern among the Greek allies who warred against the Persians. Now, today in hindsight, we might look at Greek resistance to Persian rule as natural and widespread. However, that is definitely not the case. Of all the major Greek city-states, it was only Athens and Sparta that did not think it was a good idea to fall under the Persian yoke. 
And there were only a handful of other smaller cities, such as Plataea and Thespia, which also joined them in this resistance. Unfortunately, in popular culture and in terrible movies like 300 with Gerard Butler, one gets the idea that submitting to Persia would have meant some sort of dreadful slavery and oppression. But actually, most of the people living under Persian supremacy in Anatolia, for instance, in, in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, and so on, probably would have looked at it as most people did living in the Roman Empire centuries later. They were glad that there was an overarching power structure that kept the peace, and that kept traffic and trade flowing along the roads and the sea lanes, and that otherwise largely left them alone to pursue their own cultural goals. Switching from their previous independence to life under Persian rule was really just a matter of regime change, not a change in well-being or lifestyle. Ordinary Egyptians continued to worship their own gods and live their customary Egyptian lives after Persia conquered that land. Babylonians didn't really live any differently under Xerxes' reign than they had under Nebuchadnezzar a century before that. The same could be said for most people in the Persian Empire. Now, this is not to suggest that I am personally disappointed in the Greek decision to resist. I just mean that this is all less about an admirable stand against tyranny than it is really more about a cultural turning point, which fostered the rise of a distinct set of ideas, beliefs, habits, and philosophies in the West, traditions which I and all of you listening have inherited. Now that said, don't let me confuse you about my feelings. The Greek stand at Thermopylae is tremendously moving, and like many others, I can think of few, if any, moments in Western history that are more inspiring. And I think it's fair to say that we might never have had Plato and Aristotle, the Roman Empire, Christianity, constitutional democracy, separation of church and state, the Crusades, King Arthur, Thomas Aquinas, Napoleon, rock and roll music, and a multitude of other facets of our culture if the Greeks had not stood their ground. Even though they were definitely not fighting for many of these things, the whole arc of our story changes right there in these battles, these stands, in these refusals to submit to foreign power. The idea of the West begins to take shape, drawn in blood. But that resistance was the opinion of a minority of Greeks. There was a more popular tendency to support the ideas and the efforts of the Persians. This preference for cooperation rather than resistance had a name among those Greeks who preferred freedom. It was called Medism, M-E-D-I-S-M, referring to the Medes, who were the predecessors of the Persians. Someone who was cooperating with the Persians was said to be Medizing. He was guilty of Medism. One of the reasons that this Medizing might have been so popular was because many Greeks already had great familiarity with Persian rule and Persian rulers. Many had already lived directly under Persian rule in Anatolia. Many others had served or were serving as mercenaries in the Persian army. And indeed, at this time, a former king of the Spartans, Demeritus, was living in Susa and advising the king of Persia how to defeat the Greeks. Recall from the last episode how Miltiades himself, the Greek commanding general at Marathon, had served under the Persians and helped them cross the Danube River when they escaped the Scythians. And now, actually, that I'm speaking of Miltiades, let's address his unfortunate and ignoble fate after the Battle of Marathon. When the Persians fled by sea back to Asia after their defeat at Marathon, the Greeks knew that they had a certain 
indefinite window of time before they had to worry about another Persian threat. Amassing the kind of army that Darius had sent, after all, took time. It took years of preparation, and there was plenty to do. Now, the Athenians were obviously greatly admired by their fellow Greeks, who were all incredibly impressed by that shocking victory at Marathon, and the Athenians themselves were overwhelmingly proud of their victorious troops. Miltiades in particular, he briefly found himself in that position which few men attain in political life. He had a carte blanche to do whatever he wanted with public will and public money. So he told the Athenians then that he wanted 70 ships, a force of armed men, and plenty of money to go and do what was necessary to secure wealth for Athens. They gave him everything he asked for, no questions asked. And Miltiades proceeded to attack the island of Paros. Now the people of Paros had sent a ship, a single ship, to aid the fleet of the Persians that had sat off the coast of Marathon. So Miltiades was going to make them pay for it. According to Herodotus, though, this reasoning was just a front for Miltiades to settle an old score with the Parians, as the people of that island were called. And of course, in typical Athenian fashion, Miltiades intended to make some money off of it. Unfortunately for Miltiades, he was injured in the leg during this attempt to seize the city on that island. The attempt overall also failed, and after nearly a month of besieging that city, the Athenians gave up and sailed away, the injured Miltiades aboard ship. Upon his return to Athens, Miltiades was put on trial for having deceived the Athenian people. I note here that the man who brought the charges against him was Xanthippus, father of Pericles, who would later become the most powerful political leader in Athens for decades after the completion of the war. He was also a member of the Alcmenid family. Now, the court ultimately found in favor of Miltiades, mostly because his actions at Marathon were loudly proclaimed during the trial, but he shortly thereafter died of his infected wound, and so the story ended awkwardly and unprettily for one of Athens' greatest heroes. But his fate was really not much more ugly than the general atmosphere of Greek political life. I've spoken about this before, that the towns and the cities of the Greek world were constantly at war with one another, and within their own walls, often one political party versus another. If you have read any Dante, you know how even thousands of years after this, in the Middle Ages, political parties continued to war to the death with one another, city versus city, and within the cities. In just about any Western country in 2023, perhaps we should not be so surprised by the vitriol we hear and read on television and the internet about our politics. Indeed, we are unusually sedate about politics when we compare ourselves to our ancestors. But even just in the account of Herodotus, I have had to skip over numerous mentions of petty battles and sieges involving Greek cities warring with one another, simply because there are too many of them to get into, and because I feel that they distract from the main topic of the Persian War. But these stories obviously did not distract the ancient Greeks for whom Herodotus wrote. They probably loved reading about this stuff because it was just a part of Greek nature, this constant internecine fighting like an unhappy married couple that constantly bickers and never stops dwelling on their partner's flaws and the slights both perceived and real that mar the relationship. Sometimes you see people like that and you think that maybe they couldn't be happy if they didn't have anything to complain about. Perhaps the Greeks were the same way. Perhaps we all are. Meanwhile, in the marathon, in the aftermath of Marathon, the Spartans, who were actually feeling guilty about the way that they 
treated the Persian emissaries, uh, you may recall that I mentioned in the last episodes, that they executed those emissaries without benefit of any trial or appeal. In fact, they had thrown the Persian ambassadors into a well. Well, the Spartans, sometime after the Battle of Marathon, the Lacedaemonians, as we can also call them, began to notice that their sacrifices were no longer providing positive tokens of the future. As the saying goes, the victims were not favorable at all. The Spartans realized that their impulsive and unjust treatment of the emissaries from Persia had brought a curse into their society. They decided to remove this curse by offering up two of their own men to the Persians for sacrifice in order to make things even again. Two brave men volunteered to be sacrificed, and they began the long walk on the long road to Susa, the capital of Persia, far away in the east. Along the way, they came into the custody of a Persian noble by the name of Hydarnes. He gave them the opportunity of becoming friends with the Persian king and voicing their friendship publicly, and in that way, they could avoid execution. Herodotus felt that their reply was worthy of putting down in his historical record. They said the following to the Persian Hydarnes, A slave's life you understand, but having never tasted liberty, you cannot tell whether it be sweet or not. If you knew what freedom was, you would urge us to fight for it. Upon their arrival in Susa, the Persian king chose not to condemn these men. He didn't want to commit the same evil act that the Spartans had committed, so he sent them back home unharmed. In general, actually, the entire peninsula of the Peloponnesus was a little unsettled about the whole matter. Argos, for example, the realm to the east of Sparta, still refused to join the anti-Persian allies, and things were no easier for the Athenians. In the years that followed the Battle of Marathon, well aware that they needed to prepare for another conflict but they, because the Persians would not be so easily put off, Athens reached out to other Greeks, near and far. They sent emissaries as far west as the colonies in Sicily to ask for support and assistance of any kind in materials or men. They received a little more useful than the well wishes of distant Greeks who were enveloped in their own concerns and their own local squabbles. Meanwhile, Darius summoned his empire's strength once again and prepared to strike Athens and the other rebellious Greeks with the full force of Persian military might. After the stunning defeat at Marathon, King Darius of Persia had doubly resolved to avenge himself on the Athenians. The forces he had sent to seize Greece before had been assumed to be sufficient, but they did not re represent even a fraction of the total power that the Persian Empire could bring to bear on an enemy. So he began organizing a truly great army, both to punish the resistant Greeks and to occupy their land. He spent three years planning and gathering men arms, transport, and other provisions. Darius intended this time to lead personally his army to victory in Europe. Before he could do this, however, his advisors told him that before he left his empire and went forth to risk his life, the responsible thing to do was to declare a clear successor. Some drama ensued as Darius had already fathered children before he ascended to the throne. After taking power, he had then married a daughter of Cyrus the Great and begun to have children with her as well. According to Herodotus, Demeritus, 
the exiled king of Sparta, who had become a trusted member of the king's court, Demeritus advised the king that rather than have his eldest son from his first wife succeed him on the throne, it would be better for his first son that was born after his rise to power for that son to take the throne. Thus it was that Darius appointed Xerxes, grandson of Cyrus the Great, to be king in his place should he die on the expedition to Greece. Before Darius could begin that expedition, though, his plans were interrupted. Egypt rebelled, and Darius was perplexed as to which project to tackle first, bring Egypt back into his realm or subdue Greece. Before he could make a decision on the matter, sometime around 486 BC, he died, having reigned 36 years over the greatest empire on the planet Earth. Thus Xerxes came to power, amid struggles foreign and domestic, with a grand army nearly assembled for war. Eventually, after consulting advisors, he decided on tidying things up by retaking control of Egypt. In hindsight, this makes a lot of sense. Egypt was surely a source of wealth and provisions then as it was for Rome centuries later. Besides giving him a secure southern flank for his attack on Greece, he would also have the supplies and the wealth of Egypt in his control when he went to subdue Greece. Strangely, after having devoted so much to the background of Egypt, an entire book, and such a detailed account of the original conquest by the Persians in the following book of his history, Herodotus surprises us with a brief single paragraph about the reduction of Egypt before moving on to Xerxes' determination to avenge his father and destroy the Greeks. Now, the great king, victorious in Egypt, called together his highest-ranking noblemen to hear him out on the matter of invading Greece and to advise him. He opened the discussion with his own fierce intent to conquer not only the Greeks, but to go beyond their lands and to seize all of Europe. Here is how Herodotus quotes Xerxes. On my father's behalf, and on behalf of all the Persians, I undertake this war, and pledge not to rest until I have taken and burnt Athens. Let us subdue this people and their neighbors, and we shall extend the Persian territory as far as God's heaven reaches. The sun will then shine on no land beyond our borders, for I will pass through Europe from one end to the other, and make out of all lands one country. By this course we shall bring all mankind under our yoke. But he also ends his speech by deferring to his nobles, and he left the door open for them to support his plans or to convince him differently. Now Mardonius, the general who had already led one attempt at conquest, remarked on the tenacity of the Greeks, but also on their constant infighting and the fact that they had not come out to meet him in open battle even once during his own campaign, which was prior to the Battle of Marathon. Another Persian nobleman, Artabanus by name, cautioned the king against risking once more the crossing into Europe, when the Greeks could very well destroy any bridge over the straits and trap the world's greatest army in a foreign land where it would surely fall apart. And Artabanus scolded Mardonius for encouraging the king to risk his life and his throne so foolishly. But Xerxes responded with anger at Artabanus for counseling retreat from danger and resolved to set out against the Greeks. He suggested that, were he to rest from the conflict, the Greeks would simply be mo motivated to invade his lands. As he said, there is no middle course left in this quarrel. And as we shall see in a future episode, he was probably right about the Greeks invading Anatolia at least. The Athenians would not have rested, even if the great king of Persia offered peace.
Now, a little digression about speeches in ancient texts. Here in volume 7 of his histories, and in other sections of this book, and in many other texts by ancient authors, you will find Herodotus reproducing extremely long speeches made by great men of the past. In fact, I have made very little mention of these speeches when you consider how common they are in Herodotus's work. There are over 400 speeches recounted in his history of the Persian War, making up nearly 15% of the total text. Now you may hear all this and wonder about the speeches, about their accuracy and even their overall truthfulness. Did Xerxes really say or even think any of those things that Herodotus attributes to him? Over the years, many scholars have also wondered about how accurate such accounts were, if the writer of this book or another were not simply making up what he thought it likely that the king or some other leader said in public or in private speech. Perhaps writers even put words into the speaker's mouth to support whatever narratives they were trying to craft. Now, Thucydides, a Greek author to whom we will come in future episodes, Thucydides himself remarked on this phenomenon because he also included many long speeches in his work. In the late 5th century BC, he had the following to say regarding his inclusion of speeches in his history of the Peloponnesian War. The speeches are given in the language in which, as it seemed to me, the several speakers would express on the subjects under consideration the sentiments most befitting the occasion, though at the same time I have adhered as closely as possible to the general sense of what was actually said. That's not very specific. But at least even in the case of Thucydides, he was at least a participant in many of the events about which he writes, having been an Athenian general in the war. So he's at least reproducing words that he himself heard, or that close friends might have heard and discussed with him. Herodotus, on the other hand, writes entirely of speeches made long before he lived, in lands often quite far away. There is a great deal of detailed research into this matter, and I'm not going to rehash it here. But I think for myself, after reading about the matter, that there are two good possibilities to consider besides the possibility that he may have simply cut this stuff out of whole cloth and essentially invented the speeches. One, that there may have been texts floating around during his time which contain these speeches and other accounts which he may have used as sources, though I'm not personally aware of any such texts and I'm not sure that anyone else is either. Second, we should not underestimate the capacity of the human brain for memorization. I have spoken on this matter in the first series of the podcast about the ancient world. People used to memorize the Iliad. In medieval times, bards could carry incredibly long epic poems around in their heads. It's possible that certain men went around with these speeches memorized. Indeed, it's known that some men would go and hear speeches and be paid to memorize them or earn money from doing so. It was even possible that people could hear and memorize very long speeches on the spot. I know that it's hard to believe for modern people, but we have to remember that we are living at the far end of a long descent into a sort of mental lassitude, especially when we compare ourselves to our ancestors. You see, literacy allows people to offload the burden of memory. We often speak of literacy as a marker of education, but just like reliance on computers and calculators today, literacy itself represents a dumbing down of the human being, in a sense. It allows him or her to relax the brain, which no longer needs to work so hard in retaining information, since the information can just be recorded elsewhere and consulted as needed. 
Socrates himself, in the Phaedrus, one of the dialogues of Plato, Socrates remarks on how writing leads to forgetfulness. Now, I'm not going to digress anymore on the subject here, but I encourage curious listeners to look into research about memory. It is truly fascinating. It may be depressing to realize how lazy our minds have become when we compare ourselves to our ancestors, but it is also inspiring to realize that our brains are capable of some really amazing feats of memorization. But yes, as many scholars will also suggest, it is quite possible that Herodotus was presenting speeches in his own words. Perhaps he crafted them to represent what he honestly believed was the intent of the speaker in question. It's also possible that he could have done so quite honestly, with everyone listening to him well aware of this practice and not at all deceived, and it only appears dishonest to us in later years, having different expectations as we do now for accuracy when we read a historical document. Anyway, at this point in the narrative, there also appears another ancient phenomenon which might require some adjustment for the modern reader. I have already spoken somewhat, though, about the importance of dreams among the ancients. According to Herodotus now, with the Greek adventure decided upon, Xerxes had a shocking dream. It turns out that Xerxes, after scolding Artabanus for cautioning him about undertaking the war, Xerxes had second thoughts. Privately, before going to bed that night, he decided to rescind his decision the next day and to cancel the conquest of Greece. But that night, Xerxes had a vivid dream in which a tall, beautiful man rebuked the young king for backing down from the challenge and encouraged him to stay the course with regard to the war. Then the man flew away, and the dream ended. Still, undeterred by the dream, the next day Xerxes tells the same council of Persian noblemen that he has changed his mind, and he will not take war to Greece. That next night, the dream man returns and warns Xerxes that he will be brought low unless he carries on with the planned conquest. In a bizarre sequence, Xerxes goes to Artabanus, the only noble who counseled him against the war, and tells him of the dream. And then, to make sure that the dream is really from God, he tells Artabanus to wear the king's garments, to sit on his throne, and then to go to sleep on the king's bed. Apparently, the idea that Xerxes has here is that they will fool the vision into sending the dream to Artabanus so that he too may see the dream. So the Persian nobleman puts on the king's garments and, sleeping in the king's bed, does indeed see the same dream. And the man in the vision is not fooled. He knows that it is Artabanus and that he counseled the king to avoid war. The dream man then threatens to burn out the nobleman's eyes with a hot iron. Artabanus wakes from the dream in terror and convinces the king to obey the vision. Now, this episode in the text underlines the importance that dreams had for ancient people and for their literature. We see examples of this also in the Bible, such as in Genesis, where Joseph interprets dreams for the Pharaoh of Egypt, or in the book of the prophet Daniel. And the plots of numerous Greek stories and myths are moved by dreams or by the interpretation of those dreams. Regardless, soon after this, Xerxes has another dream. In it, a crown made from an olive branch was set on his head, and more branches grew out from that crown and covered the whole earth, and then the crown vanished. This time, Xerxes let his magi interpret the dream, and they proclaimed that Xerxes will become ruler of the world. And thus, all the noblemen were sent home to begin the long preparations for the massing of the greatest army ever to march across the face of the planet.
It took nearly five years to prepare that army after the conquest of Egypt to bring together not only the soldiers to man the army, but the sea, support, the sea of support personnel, the blacksmiths and the grooms and the husbandmen and the sailors and the coach drivers and all the equipment and the armor, all the wagons and the ships and the materials for constructing bridges and other structures. Throughout the text, Herodotus provides data about the constitution and size of this Persian army. It was a composite force, like the last, small, like the last smaller army that had been sent to Greece. On the march, the king was usually found in the middle of the force, with his corps of Persian infantry and cavalry, including the Immortals, a famous body of elite 10,000 armored foot soldiers armed with spears. Before and after this corps, there came a huge, confused mob of disparate forces from every corner of the empire. The Medes, the Bactrians, the Scythians, the Indians, the Arabians, the Ethiopians, the Egyptians, Thracians, Armenians, they came on foot, and they rode in chariots and in wagons, and they sat astride horses and camels. And there were no elephants, but you might assume that if you happen to be a fan of the terrible movie 300, and if you're still inexplicably listening to this podcast, and there were definitely not any rhinoceroses, nor were there any giants. But how big was Xerxes' army? At one juncture, Herodotus claims that there were, one, there were 1.7 million men in the land force, and that the overall total number of men involved, land and sea, spearmen, archer, horsemen, sailors, and other auxiliary troops, that this overall number totaled 2.3 million. Herodotus says that rivers dried up when the army arrived because the men drank it dry, that entire cities came to ruin whenever this host came to a stop and rested because they used up every available local resource in just a day. A pause of two days was a true disaster for locals. The numbers grow even more astronomical because regions in Europe through which Xerxes passed on his way into Greece also added to his troops. And of course, there were various support personnel and camp followers who supported the troops, and of course, animal handlers and the armors and the carpenters and the cooks and the servants and so on. The final tally then, the total roll call of the army of Xerxes as it came down into Greece and met the Spartans at Thermopylae, Herodotus gives us a very specific number. 5,283,320 men. Now, does Herodotus exaggerate here? Almost certainly. But then all such military accounts exaggerate. They exaggerate the number of enemy encountered, the number of enemy killed. Even modern wars are encouraged and explained on a foundation of lies. So, there may not have been 2 million men marching out of the heart of Asia into Greece, nor a full war camp of some 5 million, but Certainly, Persia amassed a huge horde, and several hundred thousand men is not an unlikely number, though the logistical needs for such an army would have been immense at a time when there was no such thing as refrigeration to store food and nearly everything had to be provided fresh. Still, somehow, this force was supported by locals, even when it stopped to winter in Sardis and in Anatolia, and paused a month after the crossing of the Dardanelles Straits to reorganize itself for the march into Greece. Now, ahead of this army and the fleet which followed it up the coast of Anatolia, there were already Persian troops and other personnel working ahead of them. One force was busy building two pontoon bridges across the Dardanelles Strait, which uh, Herodotus refers to as the Hellespont. Another force of sailors and workers was in Greece itself, on the Athos Peninsula. 
Here, a Persian fleet had already foundered once, trying to reach to round the treacherous cape of the peninsula. I mentioned all this in the last episode. This time, Xerxes was not going to risk his fleet, nor the army that the fleet sailed to support. Instead, he ordered a trench cut across the narrow base of the peninsula so that his ships might pass peacefully through a canal and avoid the difficult waters at the tip of the peninsula. Modern investigators have actually found evidence of this canal. It is no fabrication. For three years, Xerxes maintained a fleet and a workforce in the area, digging a canal across the Athos Peninsula, wide enough for two ships of war to pass through, side by side, simultaneously. They were at work at this project long before this army and his fleet were even expected to reach the area. Such prodigious construction projects, lasting years, did not go unnoticed. The Athenians had a good idea of what was coming their way, even if they did not know the exact size and composition of the Persian army gathering in the east. Besides sending pleas to distant Greek colonies for aid, they also sent three spies to Sardis in Anatolia to see the Persian army as it passed northward toward the straits and to return with a better idea of its size and makeup. When Xerxes' army came through this region, though, the spies were caught. Instead of torturing them and executing them, as the spies might very well have expected, Xerxes instead showed them through his camp. He allowed them to see the immensity of his military might. Then he sent them back home, hoping to awe the rebel Greeks into submission. But Xerxes continued to be disturbed by portents and dreams. As he traveled, a sudden darkness came over the land and shocked the king who was only calmed by his magi, who interpreted the darkness as a sign foreshadowing the end for the Greeks. Also, while wintering in Sardis, he learned that the two bridges which his Phoenician and Egyptian vassals had just built over the straits, these bridges had been destroyed in a great storm. Angered, he sent commands ahead of his army to lash the sea with whips, to strike it with burning hot iron brands, and to verbally abuse it in his name. Even nature would be made to serve the king of kings and would be punished if it failed to meet expectations. Now, on arrival in Sardis, Xerxes had been entertained by a nobleman of Lydia. His name was Pythias. This man had even offered all his money to Xerxes, who had politely declined but declared the man a friend of the throne. As he left with his army, though, This same man, Pythias, became frightened by the same darkening of the sky which had upset uh, Xerxes. Pythias revealed to the Persian king that all five of his sons had been conscripted, conscripted into the army. He begged for the king to leave him one son, the eldest, to take care of him in his old age. Xerxes saw a failure of confidence in this, and the man felt his wrath. Xerxes declared that the four youngest sons of Pythias would indeed go to war with them, and the eldest would stay behind. Then he had that eldest son chopped in half, and he marched his entire army between the separated halves of his corpse as they left the region, bound for the Straits and for Europe. Arriving at the Straits, Xerxes was briefly overcome by both the beauty and the magnificence of what he saw, and also by its temporariness. He saw the nearby fleet covering the sea, he saw his huge army, the incredible accomplishment of the new bridges which they had made from more than 600 ships joined and anchored in place. 
The Persian nobleman Artabanus noticed that Xerxes was weeping at this sight, and he inquired after his king. Xerxes responded, There came upon me a sudden pity when I thought of the shortness of man's life, and considered that out of all this host, not one man will be alive in a hundred years. Now, no such endeavor, such as a crossing of this sort, could be undertaken in the ancient world without a religious ritual to precede it. Before the army began to cross, Xerxes poured libations from a golden cup into the waters and prayed to the sun, according to Herodotus. The great king also threw that golden cup, as well as a golden bowl and a Persian sword into the water, perhaps to propitiate the same waters that he had scourged not so long ago. It took seven days and seven nights for the entire army to cross over the bridges. Their passage over the ships continued without pause, round the clock. Now officially in Europe, Xerxes reformed his army. Setting out once again after about a month and making his way through Thrace, the king consulted his Spartan advisor Demeritus again, the man who had lost his throne in Sparta and been exiled prior to the Battle of Marathon. He wanted to know what kind of reception and possibly battle to expect from the Greeks. Now, Demeritus commended all the Dorian Greeks for their valor, but most especially, he warned the king about the Spartans. These were excellent warriors one-on-one, but when they fought in a body, he told the Persian king, no one could defeat them. Their law is their master, and their law forbids them to retreat. Even if only 1,000 Spartans gathered and encountered your entire army, Demeritus tells Xerxes, all of them would fight to the last man. Xerxes laughed at this, bewildered by the idea that any force, even numbering in the tens of thousands, would dare to take on his immense army. And so they marched on, deeper into Greece. The crossing of the river Strymon in Thrace required another religious rite. Here Xerxes paused his army and captured nine young men from the local populace. Following Persian custom, Herodotus says, Xerxes had the nine boys buried alive. Then he ordered his army to cross the river. As the Persian army loomed and menaced in the north, the resisting Greeks took an oath. When it was all over and they had removed the Persians from Greece, they would make all those Greeks who had surrendered to Persia pay for their cooperation. So confident were these rebels against Persia. This was a promise, not a threat. The victors would not forget who had failed to demonstrate their own capacity for stubborn valor. Stubborn indeed. Recall in my episode on Athens that social change at the end of the 6th century BC in which the land had been given over to a wider segment of the populace and a huge number of people had become landholders and simply by force of the way that the Athenians organized their military, these landholders had also become heavily armored hoplites. This social, cultural, and economic transition resulted in an Athens that was not willing to undergo regime change, not willing to allow any other influence into their political and cultural life, however hands-off the Persians might have promised to be. No, it was better to stand and die. And even when the oracle at Delphi seemed multiple times to indicate that their valor was folly, the Athenians had decided to stay and defend their homes. 
Even when, as the Persians neared, the Athenians sent envoys to the oracle looking for divine guidance, and the oracle produced the following prophecy. Wretches, why do you sit here? Fly to the ends of the earth. Quit your city, all ruined, all lost, since fire, speeding in a Syrian chariot, comes quickly to destroy her. The prophecy went on, with images of blood and fire as the destroyer of Athens leveled the city's temples. Now, the Athenian messengers, having been sent this one last time to ferret out some prophetic hope from the oracle, now the messengers showed the stubborn streak that must have run in their blood. They entered the temple again, this time presenting just an olive branch, and pleaded for a message with some comfort in it, or they swore that they would remain in the temple until they died. The Pythoness, the woman who spoke for the god at Delphi, responded to their perseverance thus, Safe shall the wooden wall be for you and your children. Turn your back to the foe and retreat. A day shall come when you will meet him in battle. Holy Salamis, you shall destroy the offspring of women. The Salamis that the prophetess referred to here is an island just off the coast of the city of Athens. When this last prophecy was brought back to Athens, there were various interpretations among the populace. Some thought that the citadel in Athens would save them. They thought that maybe that was what the reference to the wooden wall meant. Every city had a citadel, some fortified central location within the city into which the populace, in an emergency, could retreat and wait out a siege. Usually there were stores of food and water, or access to water there. Perhaps they thought this wooden wall was the wall of the citadel. Others thought that this phrase meant that the fleet would protect them, while another group thought that the fleet would save them, that is, take them away to another land to start over again. Many, though, saw only more darkness in the prophecy, that a sea battle near the island of Salamis would result in the final destruction of the Athenians. And now steps into our story one of the greatest figures of Greek history, though he is not often remembered in popular reconstructions of these events. Truly, the man who came forward now and dispelled the clouds of despair settling over the city, truly, this man was the quintessential Athenian. His name was Themistocles, and I have written hundreds of thousands of words over two and a half years, and I have produced more than 40 podcasts just to come to this man at this point in history. I will actually not go on at length about Themistocles right now, though. His role in the struggle for Greece will become much more substantial in the next episode about the Battle of Salamis. At this juncture, though, Themistocles stepped forward and calmed the Athenian populace. He reaffirmed that the fleet was indeed the wooden wall spoken of in the prophecy, but the prophetess referred to holy Salamis, he said, not luckless Salamis. She spoke about holy Salamis, he said. She spoke about their island, the Athenians' island, as holy in a positive light because it would come to their salvation. All the populace must make ready then to fight aboard their ships. Now, in the next episode, I will get to how Athens even came to have a fleet beyond their core of merchant vessels and tell more about the character of this Themistocles. But for now, understand that the Greek allies led by the Athenians and the Spartans, now possessed a fleet of some 200 ships with the promise of more to come. But remember that Xerxes, the Persian king, and his allies, the Phoenicians, had come to Greece with more than 1,000 ships. Now, as these prophecies were parsed for hope and as Themistocles marshaled the 
fearful Athenians far to the north, in the plains of Thessaly, the local Greeks had not cowed completely to the Persians. They sent desperate messengers to the allies in the south and pleaded for them to come north as soon as possible while the Persian army was completing the crossing of the straits and to defend Tempe, a rugged wilderness passage near Mount Olympus, truly a symbolic place for the Greeks to stop the Persian invaders. And so in response, 10,000 armed men boarded the ships of this small fleet and sped north. They disembarked at a place called Halys and marched north to the mountain pass. Arrived there, they were joined by Thessalian cavalry, ready to defend their land from conquest. But not long after they arrived, Alexander, the king of the Macedonians, not to be confused with Alexander the Great of the next century, this king already cooperating with the Persians for fear of reprisal, he sent word describing the size of the Persian army, its location, and its fleet following it down the coast. The allies were apparently sufficiently impressed with this description, and they were further aware now of other passes through which the Persians might travel and then flank their tiny army. So they decided against defending this pass. They retreated to their ships and returned to the Isthmus of Corinth to hold another war council. This was not an auspicious beginning for their combined war effort, but they did not give up. They newly resolved to find another point to defend and to prevent the Persians from reaching their homelands in the south. They chose the pass at Thermopylae. This was a thin strip of land between the shoreline of the Malian Gulf and the mountains near that coast. Here was space enough for merchants and peaceful travelers to pass between Thessaly in the north and the other Greek realms such as Phocis and Boeotia in the south, and then on to Attica and the Peloponnesus. Furthermore, the Greeks would send their small but growing fleet to Artemisium off the coast of northern Euboea, the island that paralleled Attica. At these two points, the Greeks would make their first real stand against the land and naval forces of the empire. In the meantime, though they had no idea yet, the Allies suffered their first casualties. Three Allied ships, one Athenian and two from other resisting cities, had been placed as sentinels to the north of that same location, Artemisium. The Persian fleet, far to the north still, off the coast of Macedonia, sent ten ships down to this region to scout the location. They overtook the three Allied Greek ships. The Athenians managed to reach their ship and run to safety in the wilderness. The other two crews were not so lucky. The Persians captured both these other ships. Aboard one, they found a sailor, a young man, whose physical beauty astounded them. Herodotus records that his name was Leo. To commemorate their first victory in this war, and their first seizure of a Greek ship, the Persian sailors took Leo, this handsome young man, to the prow of the captured ship, and there they sacrificed him. Leo's blood ran down over the wooden forepart of the ship, into the wine-dark sea below. The Greek allies reached their positions before the Persians did. Thermopylae, translated to English, means hot gates. Its ancient name derives from the hot sulfur springs nearby. Here a force of roughly 7,000 Greek allies gathered in the late summer of 480 BC. Among them were 300 Spartans, but they were accompanied by a thousand from one city, a few hundred from another, and so on. The Corinthians, for example, 
sent 400 men, the Thespians 700, the Thebans 400. There were no Athenians. They were manning the fleet at Artemisium with some other allies. Now, these numbers must always be uncertain, though, especially if they refer only to actual armed soldiers. Just like modern armies, ancient armies required personnel devoted to support tasks. They needed people to mend armor, to sharpen weapons, to cook food, manage beasts of burden, fix broken wagon wheels, etc. For every Spartan, for instance, there would have been multiple helot slaves to support his needs. Other accounts of this same battle record that there were 900 helots with the Spartans. Regardless, the Greek force occupying the hot gates was obviously far inferior to the Persian force approaching them. Herodotus makes mention of a wall at the pass, and I have to admit, I am not sure about what he means by this wall. He mentions how it had fallen into disuse, and that it had been rebuilt quickly by the Allies once they determined to make a stand there. Yet, in the subsequent narrative, the Greeks stand in battle formation against the Persians. They're not fighting from the wall. He even talks about a Greek camp in front of the wall at one point, which doesn't seem to make sense. Nor do we ever hear about the Greeks manning the wall against an attack. The battle descriptions seem to involve the Greeks literally going out to meet the Persians in battle, granted within the narrow confines of the pass, so that the Persian numbers did not give advantage. The narrow space and the length of the Greek spears are mentioned as advantages in the battle, but not the wall itself. Perhaps the wall had limited value because one could go around it on the ocean side, and changing tides would have affected its usefulness anyway. Therefore, fighting in front of it would have always been necessary. I have seen other descriptions of the wall as something more paralleling the mountainous side of the pass, maybe providing a safe camp in which to uh, store your troops and your provisions, but not something that actually blocked the passage. But anyway, all those assembled at the pass chose a Spartan to lead them, naturally, even though the Spartans had arrived with the fewest number of men. Leonidas, the king of the Spartans, now 60 years old, had brought with him 300 men. All of them were fathers of living sons, so that the bravery of any man who died would continue on in the blood of his progeny. Here in the text, Herodotus recounts the ancestry of Leonidas, and he traces it back to Heracles himself. From another source, we learn also that Gorgo, Leonidas's wife and queen, she asked him before he marched away to his destiny, what should she do if he did not return, if he died in battle? Leonidas replied in classic Spartan fashion, marry a good man and have good children. He had come, Leonidas, with his 300 Spartans. They had all come, even though their sacred festivals were underway and once again threatening to interrupt the plan to defend Greece. Once the festival was over, thousands more Spartans planned to march out to meet the enemy. In the meantime, these 300 would have to do. They did. Persians and their teeming army of allies first appeared on the horizon. The Greek allies were in awe. Immediately, they held a council, and many there advised a retreat. Fall back to the isthmus, they said, behind the wall being constructed there, and let the enemy try them there, close to their homes. Leonidas protested any such consideration, and this was sufficient to keep the other Greeks in place, but they did send messengers to their various cities of origin to ask for more help. 
Meanwhile, the Persian king Xerxes was curious about the rumors of a small force of Greek soldiers holding the pass ahead of him. He sent a scout on horseback to spy them out. The horseman returned to Xerxes with a curious tale. He had seen a camp of Greeks in front of the wall. Besides counting their numbers, he had also noticed that, of the men there, some were engaged in gymnastic exercises, while others were combing their long hair. He also noted that no one paid him any attention or thought to intercept him in his mission. Xerxes, perplexed at this description, called Demeritus, the exiled Spartan king, to his tent and asked for an explanation. Demeritus let him know that this was to be expected, that the Spartans, for one thing, adorned their hair whenever they were about to put their lives in jeopardy. He also tried to prepare and inspire Xerxes for the coming encounter with the Spartans. If you can defeat these men here and the remaining Lacedaemonians, there is no other nation in the world that will lift its hand in defiance of you. You are about to encounter the first city and the first kingdom in all of Greece and its bravest men. Xerxes did not believe that such a small force would dare stand against his multitudes. He disbelieved this so strongly that he waited before the gates for four days, allowing the Greeks full opportunity to rethink the situation in either retreat or surrender. Now, there are many legends about this event, about this battle before, during, and after, more than I can give space to in this podcast. Plutarch, though, writes of one memorable moment, and I certainly hope it is true. It is true, somehow, at its heart, even if the exact event did not play out as described. According to Plutarch, Xerxes sent a messenger to Leonidas at some point before the opposing forces finally engaged in battle. When Leonidas would not listen, when he would not surrender the pass or retreat from it, Xerxes' envoy became impatient, and he laid it on the line for the Spartan king. Surrender your arms now. Leonidas replied, Malan Labe, come and take them. There is another story told to highlight Spartan bravery. Once the battle was about to be engaged, the Greeks worried about the number of Persian archers that they would let fly so many darts that their numbers would block out the sun. One of the Spartan soldiers is said to have remarked only that this was good, because then they would fight in the shade rather than under the hot sun. Regardless, on the fifth morning, Xerxes finally tired of waiting, and he sent in the Median infantry to attack the Greek position. Herodotus only tells us that the Medians met with terrible losses and were repulsed by the Greeks. These initial battles apparently included both Spartans and elements of the other Greek units at Thermopylae. Xerxes, angry at this initial failure to dislodge such a small band of men, now sent in his Persian immortals, led by the nobleman Hydarnes. These suffered the same defeat as the Medes. The Spartans reportedly used the following tactic at one or more points in the battle. They would turn their backs and appear to retreat. Then, when the Persians advanced shouting and in disorder, the Spartans would wheel around in formation and devastate their pursuers. The next day, the Persians hoped that the Greeks would depart, owing to their many wounds and exhaustion. They advanced against the pass, but the Greeks came forth in turns, each city's troops taking turns to meet the enemy's attacks, and the Persians retired again at the end of the second day, still unsuccessful. The third day of the battle dawned, the seventh day since the Persian army had arrived. In the night, though, treachery had brewed in the darkness. A Greek local by the name Ephialtes knew of a hidden, narrow track through the mountains above the pass. Maybe not enough for the whole army to pass through, but a sufficient Persian force could travel it and enable Xerxes to threaten the outnumbered Greeks from both front and rear. 
The Greeks knew of this retreat, of this threat, though perhaps not until they had committed to defending this point, and Leonidas had posted about a thousand Greek soldiers from Phocis to guard that route. These guards briefly engaged the invading Persians and then fled. They reported to Leonidas that they were now all about to be encircled. Immediately, the various Greek leaders proposed retreat, quickly, because it would not take long for the Persians to the rear to seal off any possible route of escape. Leonidas told these other leaders to do as they pleased, but he and his men would stay and fight. Most of the Greek defenders then fled. And so, as morning dawned, Leonidas and his remaining Spartans, with their helots and 700 thespians who refused to leave and 400 Thebans, all these charged out at the Persians before the wall. The Persians advanced with infantry, infantry and cavalry. The Greeks fought like berserkers with no hope for salvation. This day, many famous high-born Persians died in the fury of that conflict, including two brothers of King Xerxes. Leonidas too died, and the Spartans fought ferociously to protect his body. Bearing his body away, they learned now that the Persians, who had taken the mountain pass, were drawing near from behind them. So the surviving soldiers from Thebes then surrendered. The other troops, Spartans and Thespians both, fell back behind the wall and made one last stand atop a small hill. Here they were cut down to a man. Recent archaeology has discovered, on a hill near the ancient pass in Thermopylae, where lower sea levels have turned the former seashore into a gentle plain, here researchers have discovered countless Persian arrowheads buried, buried deep in the soil of a single hill. The site of the last stand is even now a place you might go and see what those last warriors saw before they closed their eyes forever and became the physical foundation of our Western traditions. After the battle, Xerxes once more sought out Demeritus, the exiled Spartan king who had become his advisor. He asked him, How many more of these men are left in Greece? Demeritus replied, O king, there is a town in Lacedaemon called Sparta, which contains within it about 8,000 full-grown men. They are, one and all, equal to those who fought here. He also warned Xerxes that he should not seek to battle the Spartans at the Isthmus of Corinth, where they were already building a wall to prepare another narrow battleground to neutralize the Persian advantage in numbers. Instead, he should sail around and seize Kithra, an island off the coast of Sparta, and from that dominating vantage compel them, one way or the other, to submit, rather than fight directly. Events were such that he would never find out, we would never find out if Xerxes would have fought at the Isthmus. In the meantime, the Persian king sought out the body of Leonidas. He found it and beheaded it. Then he took the trunk of the body and he crucified it. Monuments were set up here at Thermopylae, much later after the war had passed, in honor of the dead. One monument was dedicated to the Spartans. Its epitaph was characteristically concise. Here is what it said. Stranger, go tell the Spartans that we lie here obedient to their laws. Not all the 300 died there at the pass. One survivor, Aristotomus, had not been present. Different stories persist about his absence. According to one, he was sick, ill with some malady of the eyes, and he lay recovering in a camp far behind the pass. In another story, he had been sent as a messenger behind the lines, and then loitered while returning to the war camp and therefore missed the battle. According to Herodotus, he was shamed for this, but he redeemed his reputation a year later when he fell fighting furiously at the Battle of Plataea. 
Another warrior from among the 300 survived because Leonidas had sent him as an ambassador to Thessaly prior to the battle. This man later returned to Sparta, unable to come to grips with his shame. He hung himself. Surely this was the end of all things. The Persians had broken through the pass. All the lands of central Greece lay defenseless before them. The army stomped over the bodies in the bloody battleground as it marched through the hot gates and turned south, Xerxes himself eager to lay waste to Athens and then subdue the rest of Greece. This would only be the beginning, though. He had promised his Persians that he would become master of all Europe. In the next episode, we will find out how things fared with Themistocles and the Greek navy at Artemisium, and how the sailors there and the rest of Greece reacted to the Persian victory at Thermopylae. Until then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.